Welcome back. I'm Max Bergman, director of the Stewart Center and Europe-Russia-Eurasia program at CSIS. And I'm Maria Snigovaya, senior fellow for Russia and Eurasia. And you're listening to Russian Roulette, a podcast discussing all things Russia and Eurasia from the Center for Strategic and International Studies. In today's episode, we will be talking about the important strategic relationship between Russia and China, with Russia's invasion of Ukraine, the ongoing relationship between Beijing and Moscow has become an increasingly critical space to watch. Just prior to the war, the relationship between Russia and China had apparently reached new bounds, with a partnership with no limits being declared. Yet over the last year, it increasingly looks like there are, in fact, limits on this partnership. And you are about to hear a conversation I had with fellow CSIS expert Brian Hart from our China Power Project, and Maya Nguyen's, a senior fellow for Chinese security and defense policy at the International Institute for Strategic Studies, or IISS. We talked about our recent CSIS report, Understanding the Broader Transatlantic Security Implications of Greater Sino-Russian Military Alignment. This report included eight analytical papers written by leading international researchers. It dives into the complexities of one of the most important geopolitical relationships of our time. The core source material for this project was comprised of publications by leading Russian and Chinese strategic thinkers. Selections of these documents have been translated and published for the first time in English as part of this volume. And you can access the full report online at CSIS.org or check the show notes. And now, on to the conversation. Before turning to our panelists, let me just talk briefly about the report and maybe summarize some of its key findings. Um, It's important to note the report began before Russia's invasion of Ukraine, and it analyzes literature from uh, security scholars from Russia and China uh, that were written before the war about their views on the relationship. Uh, While most of the, but uh, however, most of the chapters uh, of the report were written after the war um, uh, had been launched in, in February. Uh, but much of the analysis focuses on the relationship uh, where the relationship was pre-conflict. Uh, but I actually think this gives us a really good baseline to assess the relationship uh, and and to really uh, assess what are the challenges and opportunities uh, right now uh, when we assess uh, Sino-Russian relations. Um, and I think one of the, the the key features of the report that comes out in many of the chapters is that the China-Russia relationship really began to, to uh, uh, shift gears uh, because of war, and frankly, because of Russia's first invasion of Ukraine in 2014. Uh, and since then, the leaders, I think, of both the leadership of both China and Russia uh, believe they have a mutual interest in working together to challenge what they perceive as a Western-dominated world uh, designed to constrain their strategic interests. Uh, And the report focuses on four different, uh, very specific areas, arms sales and technology transfers, uh, military exercises, space and cyber warfare, uh, and uh, hybrid uh, hybrid warfare and hybrid tactics. Um, And overall, we found that Russia and China saw each other as increasingly important strategic uh, partners. They both prioritized uh, strengthening relations. Uh, which was, I think, vividly codified and, uh, and symbolized uh, at the Beijing Winter Olympics in February when uh, China and Russia declared in a joint statement that this was a partnership with no limits. But, and I think there is a clear but, there was also a clear sense of lack of trust uh, uh, between the two countries, uh, concern over potential uh, 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 transfers of technology and, and, and 
overall strategic intentions. Uh, we did find that there was a strategic triangle essentially emerging uh, where strategic thinkers uh, support uh, on both sides in both Beijing and Moscow, uh, support joint action to rebalance the strategic triangle between the United States, China, and Russia uh, toward China and Russia. Uh, and this geopolitical rebalance will serve the state interests of both uh, Russia and China, but will also limit what these thinkers view as the destabilizing influence of American-led Western hegemony. Uh, it's, I think, also important to note that one of the themes that comes through is a growing inequality in the relationship. This is largely due to China's growing strength. Uh, and so despite the kind of shared support for uh, uh, increasing relations, there's uh, there's tension there, too, because of China's strength and, and Russia's uh, concern about uh, its its weakness. Um, we looked when we looked at arms sales, uh, Russia used to dominate this aspect of the relationship. Uh, but now finds itself roughly on equal footing with China. In fact, potentially competitors, given uh, they are both competing for similar sales uh, in the global market, especially when we look at uh, lower and, and medium income countries. Uh, with military exercises over the last decade, Russia and China have increased the scale of their cooperation. Uh, and, and strategic thinkers on both sides believe this is the kind of military alignment that will continue. And I think it's important here that China may view that it has a lot to learn from Russia, what it's gaining from, what it's learning from uh, the war in Ukraine and having to go up against Western weaponry. Um, when it comes to space and cyber, another realm that we looked at, uh, Russian and Chinese experts also saw that this was uh, an, a, an area of converging uh, alignment and, and avenue, avenues for techno, technological cooperation. But there were also growing doubts on whether Russia would be able to really deliver on what it was uh, potentially committing to uh, and I think the, those concerns will be especially true uh, uh, given the sanctions that have been in place since the war and, and Russia being very distracted by the conflict in Ukraine. Um, lastly, uh, we looked at hybrid warfare. And I think here this will be uh, of interest to, to our American and European friends uh, that both Russia and China view hybrid warfare and hybrid tactics as something being done against them. This is uh, the so-called color revolutions as something that the West does to them and that they see their hybrid responses against the West, uh, interference in, uh, in, in elections, seeking influence, as a way of responding to what they see as uh, Western initiatives. Um, and this was an area where there was potential for cooperation, uh, particularly on, on, on population control, on monitoring of populations, uh, but was still, I think, somewhat nascent and both, both uh, Russia and China kind of still went their own way. Um, uh, with that, let me uh, turn um, to uh, to Maya and 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 ask her to sort of uh, kick us off and to start uh, and to really talk about her paper uh, that she contributed to this edited volume, uh, Sino-Russian Military Technological Cooperation uh, from Capability Gaps to Tech Technology Partnership, and that's that's with a question. So let me turn the floor over to you. Thank you. Thanks, Max. And um, I also want to echo my thanks to CSES for um, including me in this project and also, of course, to um, the work from the team kind of behind the scenes and in getting um, uh, all of this to the finish line as well. It's been really gratifying to work with you all on this. Um, so I did indeed look at kind of the defense technological relationship between Russia and China from a Chinese perspective, looking at Chinese 
um, uh, primary um, Chinese language sources on the matter um, from Chinese experts and analysts to kind of think about what um, how China views this relationship, both retrospectively and also um, moving forward as well. And it gets very clear that a few things um, uh, jumped out at me. First of all, of course, that um, China's defense industry has, of course, developed over the last few decades, substantially becoming more uh, indigenously capable and more advanced uh, or capable of producing advanced um, uh, indigenous capabilities. Uh, and that there is now less and less a need for arms imports or arms transfers from the Russian defense technological and industrial base. Um, arms sales as a result of this have, of course, over time decreased significantly from Russia to China. And there's a real sense of pride in the Russia, in the Chinese literature on this, that China has somehow um, graduated from having this inferior position in the past and now is on um, a, a greater sense of uh, equal footing. I note that um, in the past, there the way that the Chinese authors that I looked at wrote about this, they noted a sense of um, deep historic chauvinism on on Russia's engagement with China on defense technological transfers, um, and that that trend, uh, and that China's now graduation in terms of defense technological uh, um, industrial capabilities means that they can push back against that chauvinism uh, a lot more. Um, so both countries have now moved from um, a position of China being inferior and Russia being uh, superior to one more of rough uh, equality. Um, however, uh, that equality does not equate to trust in that relationship uh, due to the ways in which China has reached that parity, perhaps, in defense technological capabilities, um, uh, noting in particular, uh, interestingly, by Chinese experts, uh, the mistrust uh, from the from the Russian side stemming from China's perhaps um, um, past uses of Russian IP and uh, reverse engineering practices, which they termed not in such strong words, but uh, uh, described as Russia uh, China's technology technologies having um, similar Russian genes in them, uh, which I found a really poetic way of of putting that. Um, nevertheless, so there is there's this mistrust. Um, both countries, however, still see from the Chinese perspective, at least a utility in this bilateral relationship um, because it falls within the greater, wider context of great power competition with not just the United States, but the West in general. And so there is from the Chinese literature a sense that the two sides are moving from a one-sided procurement relationship now to slowly one of equal learning. So instead of just um, this being a transactional relationship in terms of arms sales, we're now moving to an era in the defense technological relationship between the two countries whereby there's joint R&D. Uh, and we've seen that, for example, with reports about um, uh, the Russians and the Chinese are working together to uh, develop an advanced early warning um, uh, system uh, as well, amongst other things, of course. Uh, nevertheless, as was noted in the introduction, this, of course, all predates uh, some pretty major events uh, that have impacted this bilateral relationship. And so the question, of course, is how long this this relationship of equals uh, would last. Now, uh, we now know the answer that it's uh, a little more short-lived than we perhaps would have thought at the start of this uh, writing this paper. Um, uh, and it's certainly now, I think, a more prominent issue. Um, 
I wonder, uh, however, moving forward, you know, uh, two key questions to maybe keep in mind and conduct further research on that I'll be looking at in the next year or so is, first of all, um, how China will now seek to leverage this new uh, unbalance in the in the bilateral relationship with with China now having a very much more a very much stronger position in in the bilateral relationship. What will it seek to do with that um, relationship being weighted in its favor? And second of all, how will Beijing uh, balance concerns about you know great power competition with concerns about potentially being at risk of um, secondary sanctions if it does continue to deepen uh, it, it's it's uh, it's it's now deepened um, uh, bilateral uh, defense technological relationship with Russia. I think those are things that don't necessarily have answers to yet. We've seen China be very cautious, I think, in its um, engagement with Russia so far since the war in Ukraine started. Um, but perhaps that's something we could dig into a little bit more in the Q&A, and I'll leave it at that for now. Great. Well, thank you so much. Let me turn it uh, over to, to Brian, and then uh, then I'll ask a few questions, and then we'll um, uh, 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 maybe shift to also looking forward about U.S.-Russia-China uh, relations, how, how it sort of responds to the war. Uh, I should also mention, which I forgot to, uh, that if uh, uh, those in the audience would like to uh, ask a question, um, I think you can you can do so uh, on YouTube, and we will we will try to try to get to them. But Brian, let me turn turn it over to you. Sure, and and thanks for having me, and and thanks to your team for for organizing this event and for you know putting this report together. I think this is a really valuable uh, new publication to be coming out at this time. Uh, you know, given the state of the the China Russia relationship, uh, so I, I really commend you all on putting this together. So uh, Bonnie Lin and I, the, Bonnie Lin is on our team. She's the head of the China Power Project here at CSIS. Uh, so she and I wrote on specifically China-Russia military exercises, uh, looking at what Chinese scholars mostly are, are, are saying about this. And so uh, we, we relied mostly on Chinese think tanks, uh, experts and, and academics, but we also relied quite a bit in this on uh, one important source, which is the the uh, science of military strategy, which is an important uh, you know PLA document and textbook that's used by those uh, at, at China's defense universities. So that that kind of popped up over and over uh, throughout this report. But I'll just kind of summarize some of our findings uh, and then then touch on the implications. So we really thought about this as we read you know all of these different sources. We kind of saw four major themes emerging, and we kind of touched on each of these. Um, the first of those is, is China's desire to gain military experience from this. Uh, so if you if you think about China's military, they haven't been engaged in a, in a large scale conflict in over 40 years. And so this is a constant refrain that you see in, in PLA sources talking about the need to gain experience uh, and, and to to find new opportunities to to practice military operations uh, to prepare for war. And so that is a big part of what drives China's interest in, in these exercises. Uh, and, and they've really, I think, as a result of that, the, the nature and the types of exercises that China and Russia engage in has really expanded over the years. We've mapped this out uh, in graphs on our website. And, and so if you look at this, it really grew from the first exercise in 2003 uh, to, in some year, recent years, uh, you know, up to 10 or more exercises in a given year. And those have taken a lot of different forms. They've grown from in the early years, largely being uh, ground-based exercises focused on anti-terrorism, uh, to now there are, uh, you know, repeated joint naval exercises, 
aerial patrols. So you really see, uh, you know, them widening the aperture of their their experiences here, and and I think that's an important point for for the Chinese side. Um, and increasingly, the, the Chinese experts have talked about this, uh, as you know, Max and, and may have noted, the 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 shifting balance of power here is kind of reflected in this, with with both with China increasingly thinking about these exercises not from a from a junior position, but from a more co-equal and perhaps even a senior position, and and. Scholar, Chinese scholars repeatedly spoke specifically about um, one exercise in 2021, which is uh, called Zapad Interaction 2021, which I'm, I'm sure the Russians have spoken about some as well. But the Chinese really spoke about that as, as being one of the first times that they've hosted a major exercise uh, and, and really led it from a more senior position. And they even spoke about that being a, a part of them building their own military brand as a part of these exercises. So I think that one has emerged as an important one. Uh, and, and we see it'll be interesting to see if we see uh, increased cooperation uh, along those lines going forward. The next area we looked at was uh, the, the role of these exercises in, in deterring the United States and its allies. So one of the interesting things about almost every uh, major military exercise China holds, you will see a, an official statement that these exercises don't target third parties. Uh, you know, they're not politically driven. But if you look at what the experts are saying, that's exactly uh, the opposite of what's true. Uh, so even China's uh, textbook on the science of military strategy outright says that, you know, exercises uh, between uh, both bilateral and, and multilateral exercises are aimed at strategic deterrence. They're aimed at creating uh, skepticism in the mind of their adversaries about what their intentions are, whether they'll eventually turn this into something bigger than an exercise uh, or, you know, there's a real psychological component there that they see. And, and We've seen specifically experts talking about the the role of some of these uh, exercises as being specifically targeting Japan and the United States. Uh, and I would just flag one of these, the most telling example lately is the May uh, aerial patrol that we saw when uh, the quad leaders were meeting in, in Japan uh, and China and Russia decided to have an aerial patrol that went between the strait between Japan and, and South Korea, both countries of which had to scramble jets to to kind of trail these these Russian and Chinese aircraft. So that was a very clear use of, of these exercises for political targeting. And, and I think we're likely, one of the things that we say is, I think we're likely to probably see even more of that going forward. Um, last two points is, uh, I think uh, another important part from China's view is that these play a role in uh, shoring up regional security and stability. So you all touched on on some of the, the color revolutions that are in the minds of, I think, both China and Russia. And if you think about a lot of these exercises taking place at, through the Shanghai Cooperation Organization within Central Asia, a lot of them are focused on um, anti-terrorism exercises. And so that's an important way for, I think, both China and Russia to reassure some of the, the countries in, this, in Central Asia and to help them uh, shore up their security resilience. And you know, I think that's that's another important part of this is the Shanghai Cooperation Organization. That's been a really big platform for them to engage on these. And finally, uh, we looked at how this just supports the broader China-Russia relationship. Uh, you see them speaking about how they've actually both sides have, or especially the Russian side has used uh, these exercises to show off some of their equipment that they might try to sell to, to China. And so that's been an uh, a way for Russia on its side to do that. And, and China looks at these as an opportunity to to maybe enhance a little bit of the trust between the two sides, as as I think we'll discuss deeper. There is a, a lack of trust uh, on, on some of these issues between the two sides. And so 
theoretically joint military exercises can play a role in, in kind of some of these people to people exchanges on the military front. So just wrapping that all together, one of the things that I think is an open question to me is, you know, in the medium long to long term, as the war in Ukraine goes on, as Russia expends more resources, will we see this being a will will we see that being a major problem for for broader China Russia military cooperation, but the exercises in general? So um, we actually did see, uh, I think, in maybe August or September, there was a, a large exercise in eastern Russia where China joined. But the reporting was that, that that military exercise was significantly scaled down from the past and, and some estimating that that was due to you know Russia being strained with the war in Ukraine. So that's an interesting dynamic. Will we see more of that uh, and, and how will China react to that? I think those are all really interesting dynamics that, I, that we'll be watching going forward. So I'll leave it there, but I'm looking forward to questions. Great. No, thanks, Brian. And let me maybe uh, stick with you uh, with, with the first question. Uh, it, it, the exercises seem to me to be an area where um, uh, this is something Russia brings to the table in the relationship, where China has something to, to gain from learning about uh, uh, from Russia uh, from its military experience. Now, right now, we are sort of uh, used to uh, um, uh, de degrading the Russian military uh, given its performance in Ukraine, but it has now experience operating in Syria, experience operating uh, war in Georgia. Um, uh, it is now operating against Western equipment. Um, is do you, in your interpretation of these uh, exercises from the Chinese perspective, is this something that the Chinese really value and uh, are eager to kind of continue going forward? Yeah, so that was actually one of the more interesting things that we looked into. Uh, there was one source, one Chinese scholar spoke pretty openly about some of the limitations that they see actually on the Russian side. And that this was uh, before the, the, the most recent invasion of Ukraine. And they spoke openly about while the main benefit that Russia has, of course, is that it has been engaged in multiple operations. And so they see uh, Russian groups, battalions having a lot of experience uh, in, in terms of conflict. But they, the Chinese sources emphasize that a lot of that experience has been focused on the kinds of operations that they're doing in Ukraine. Uh, that they have been doing in Ukraine since 2014. And so some of the Chinese scholars actually disparaged the Russian forces a little bit, saying that, you know, those that experience and that those applications might not apply to some to some other scenarios. So there was that um, bit of, I think, interesting critique. They also um, very openly critiqued some of the, the Russian military equipment and noting that, by and large, a lot of the Chinese equipment now is a lot more modern than Russian equipment. Uh, and so that's an interesting dynamic. And, and I think it's pretty clear that that's only become, going to become more of the case as China, I think, continues to advance its indigenous development of equipment. And as Russia, I am not a Russian expert, but I think, you know, there's clear signs that, that these, you know, protracted wars have been a strain on, on China, Russia's, you know, defense industry and also the the, the sanctions placed on Russia. So that's an interesting dynamic. Uh, I think the, the Chinese do still see um, some benefit in gaining experience and learning from the Russians, but I think they're increasingly skeptical of the, the overall value. So uh, I think these exercises continue and, and, China, and China sees them as useful, but I personally think that for China, increasingly the, the value is at the strategic and kind of deterrent level to focus these exercises, especially on uh, responding to U.S. actions and to deterring you, the United States and its allies. So, yeah, I think that's that's another interesting thing that we'll watch going forward. 
and to may I want to sort of a similar question uh, for you because it it seems like the arms sales uh, uh, security um, cooperation or potential technology transfer uh, of major weapon systems like um, Russian air defense, Russian fighter jets, uh, other technology that was sort of a key part, uh, you know, arms sales were sort of a key part of Sino-Russian relations. And that, um, you know, China has modernized its military uh, and I could see a lot of Russian resident, uh, uh, reticence, sorry, to proceed with arms sales when you know that uh, China will seek to uh, take them apart and, and essentially replicate them. Uh, you noted that uh, the Russians sort of speak proudly of some of China's weapon systems having uh, Russian genes. I mean, some of the Chinese weapon systems have American genes as well. Um, but I guess from a Chinese perspective, um, do they are they concerned about that reputational cost about uh, essentially by uh, um, having sort of violated some technological trust in the past? Uh, presumably that they would give certain assurances to maintain the technological flow or is China sort of quite comfortable with its kind of current, the current state of the relationship there uh, and not necessarily needing more Russian equipment? I think there are areas that China, I think these are like to haves, but not necessarily must haves in terms of what we still think China could leverage from the Russian um, uh, defense industry. I mean, certainly, of the most advanced types of um, Russian um, aircraft engines might be of use. Um, on the other hand, we've seen, for example, the J-20s now um, being converted to using Chinese indigenous um, aircraft engines. So, you know, I really wondered to what extent there is there is a, um, a an absolute need for this technology rather than, you know, it's great if they could get their hands on it. Um, so, I mean, one thing to look forward to, I guess, I suppose, is how desperate the Russians would be for um, for financial, you know, financial motivation to to actually give up its last crown jewels to the Chinese. I mean, they've been very hesitant with things like air defense systems um, in the past um, and then jointly, uh, you know, developing an early warning system and something else. But um, it, it all goes to, you know, is Russia still able to export at a, at a large rate in order to finance its defense industry? And if it's not, then what are its options here and how, you know, how much reputational damage is it willing to just accept uh, as a consequence of the war in Ukraine in this bilateral relationship? Because it would, it would, I, I would imagine, I'm not a Russia expert, but I imagine it would be a pretty big psychological blow to just at the end of the day, have to admit that the Chinese are in a stronger position, technologically speaking, after a long history of that not being the case. Yeah, I think one of the the major challenges when we talk about uh, a relationship based on arms sales or arms sales cooperation is that if both countries have a, a vibrant arms sales industry, uh, they're inherent competitors as well. And you know, the United States sees that with uh, our relations with France, where we are competing for arms sales globally. And European countries themselves, when they try to do uh, joint defense projects, uh, such as the future combat air system or something like that, that involves a number of countries, there's all sorts of concerns about basically supporting your competitor. Uh, and, and so with that, I think when I sort of look forward at the kind of global arms sales uh, trade, where many of Russia's arms sales go uh, to lower and middle income countries, 
particularly in Africa, uh, where uh, the inability of Russia perhaps to export the same level of arms because they're going to be needed for this war will create huge market opportunities potentially for the Chinese. Is that something that you are seeing uh, in China that there is sort of discussion of or thinking about how to take advantage uh, right now of, of potential Russian weakness, where in some ways this relationship uh, that it, we're trying to build, well, now there's this this real potential for antagonism. Look, I haven't, to be honest, I haven't seen that um, that discussed yet. Um, that that level of schadenfreude, I think, is is probably not at the at the top of the minds at the moment. I think uh, Russia's performance in Ukraine and Russia's war of aggression in Ukraine has uh, caused plenty of problems. Uh, I think for China. Um, and challenges moving forward. So I'm not sure if, you know, the the glee about perhaps taking um, uh, Russia's share of, of defense exports uh, markets is, is at the top of the mind at the moment. Um, I would say, of course, that the two defense industries are in a very different place. Russia needs to export arms and sell arms in order for to drive modernization and, and continued investment in its defense industry. China's defense industry doesn't really need that. So um, again, this is a maybe nice to have. On the other hand, I think there is a limit to what China at the moment is willing to export um, in terms of you know, how much of its most uh, advanced uh, equipment it, it wants to keep for its own use um, and not export. So, so uh, definitely not something that I've seen just yet, but something to keep an eye on. Especially after the the last Zhuhai Air Show, of course, as well, which was fascinating. Actually, maybe you could uh, pick up on that point uh, a little bit and maybe talk about the the last Zhuhai Air Show. Sure. I mean, I so again, um, saw advancements in their air to air missile capabilities, um, which is perhaps not entirely surprising. I think that's been an ongoing uh, story. Um, the perhaps most surprising thing that I saw. Uh, uh, were some uh, UAVs and and, and new uh, versions and, and variants of UAVs that I hadn't seen before and weren't necessarily on my radar. Um, whether or not those are uh, already for export, I think is is doubtful. And uh, certainly, a lot of them are, are mock-ups and not yet um, uh, just real uh, capabilities. But um, but I think it's an interesting trend towards that unmanned or uncrewed uh, capability that the PLA is. Is or at least Chinese defense industry is is focusing on um, more and more. So, Brian, uh, back to you on on exercises. You know, part of the the purpose of military exercises is that they send a real symbolic uh, a message about a growing partnership, about the strength of relations, uh, and that you know, if two countries are willing to do military exercises together, it demonstrates the closest of that bond, and and they're willing to trust each other. Uh, with uh, essentially with how, you know uh, sharing how each other's militaries operate, um, given the the kind of weak turnout essentially of of Russia in some of the the exercises this year, uh, do you and also the potential reputational cost perhaps from the Chinese, uh, do you think that the, this this ex military exercises could be an area of cooperation that essentially begins to 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 fade or? You know, we've maybe hit the high water mark, and uh, that they, they, we could be in a downslope here, where there's less focus on that. It's it's a good question, and we touch on this a little bit at the end of our piece. I think rather than fade, I think they're likely to evolve more. Uh, one of the things we point out is is 
you know, if Russia is drained militarily due to the war, uh, you know, in the medium or even long term, one of the things that we might see is continued scaled down exercises. So before the war, you had these very large exercises. I believe the Vostok 2018 games were some 300,000 troops total, which is a huge number of, of troops uh, for an exercise. And, and so we're not seeing that yet. Um, it looks like things have been downsized, at least for now. Uh, whether that remains a, a permanent fixture is, is unclear. What I what I do expect is for for China to increasingly take the lead. And if you look, take the lead in terms of organizing, hosting, and, and I think planning these exercises. Because if you look at what these Chinese experts are saying, they're very excited by the prospect of actually now being in a place to to do that, to to be able to at least be on an equal footing with Russia, if not in a more advanced footing. Um, and so I think that that is something that we're likely to see is we're likely to see perhaps China in the driver's seat a bit, a bit more in terms of deciding where, you know, where these exercises will take place and in and what scenarios. So one thing that, you know, what I think be extremely escalatory that we haven't seen in the past is we haven't really seen Russia agree to engage in, in exercises near the Taiwan Strait so much. So if you look back to, to one of the first exercises that they held in 2005, they, there was initially a request by, by the Chinese side to put them closer to the Taiwan Strait. And, and the reporting is that the Russian side pushed away from that. And so they ended up holding exercises, uh, I believe, in Shandong province, which is, is much farther north uh, of ta the Taiwan Strait. So one interesting dynamic, I don't expect to see this you know, in the near future, but in the long term, if China really is in the driver's seat, Will we see uh, Russia being willing to to you know engage in some my, uh, bilateral or even multilateral exercises closer to the Taiwan Strait as as a, a tool for deterrence? And that would be a really I think a, an interesting shift. Uh, and so that's something I would I would look to watch for. But by and large, I think we're again li likely to see perhaps some more scaled down versions, at, at least from the Russian side. Uh, and I think. You can still make very pointed uh, deterrent, send very pointed deterrent signals with even limited exercises. Uh, point in case being the May aerial bomber uh, patrol near, you know, that took place during the the Tokyo Quad Summit. So I think if you if you think about that, I think those are the kinds of more pointed uh, exercises that they're likely to engage in going forward. Uh, and so that's more or less what I see. And I wouldn't I wouldn't necessarily consider that a scaling back, just an evolution uh, in terms of how how their their power dynamics are, are evolving and maybe a, a question for both of you um about what would china uh seek to learn from russia about the, the war in ukraine uh brian you had mentioned that um you know the chinese sort of thought that russia previously was sort of overly focused on events in ukraine uh and that it wasn't as relevant to to chinese uh, strategic concerns However, you know, I think the current war is, is of, a, of a totally different nature. Um, there's use of massive Western weaponry. Uh, and, you know, one of the things that we have noticed uh, is that we, you know, get Iranian drones will we'll fall into Ukrainian hands and then be dissected by uh, think tank members and, 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 and various governments. And so we are getting to see what Russian advanced we uh, Russian weaponry and Russian missiles, what ships are in them. Uh, but some of the weaponry that is being provided to Ukraine, um, some of that is also going astray. That was a major concern when I was in the U.S. government about, especially in 2014 and 15, about providing Ukraine 
with potentially technologically advanced systems where a military that was seen as uh, potentially penetrated by Russian intelligence. So I would think that the Russians might have something here to essentially trade or some knowledge or intel or information that the Chinese might find interesting. Do you think that there's a desire in China to kind of learn about the employment of Western weaponry, some of the lessons that learned uh, that that um, that the Russians uh, are are facing uh, in in this conflict, and, and perhaps other techno technological uh, areas where um, the Russians might have have some information that Chinese might be interested in. Is that something? And I would think the Russians would want to trade that information uh, effectively. But it, is will that be of interest to China, Brian? Maybe I'll start with you, and then then to Maya. Sure. Yeah. I, I mean, I think I'll start off by saying that one of the things that we know for sure is that the PLA is watching the war in Ukraine very closely. We know that the PLA and, and their their scholars have watched past conflicts very closely. One of the things that helped to kickstart their own modernization drive was just how successful the U.S. kind of uh, it, what they call uh, intelligentized uh, warfare, you know, smart weaponry, how that went in the Gulf War. They took a lot of lessons from that. And saw how effective it was for the United States, and, and they they tried to incorporate that into their own modernization efforts. And so, I think we're certainly likely to see PLA scholars watching this conflict. What you raise an interesting point about whether the Chinese would want, uh, you know, some of this intelligence. I'm sure that Beijing wants intelligence, um, both intelligence that they they collect on their own, but also hoping that that Russia shares some of that intelligence. But I think I, an interesting you know, issue is I again. I'm not a Russian expert, so I, I'd be interested in, in what Russia would be willing to share uh, with with the Chinese, just because of there is a, an undercurrent of distrust that kind of permeates the military relationship. Both from, I think, really we we've kind of mapped this out a, a bit. You can look at just how many cases there have been of, of uh, at least in the public space of Chinese espionage of Russian equipment, just, not just copying it, uh, but also stealing it, uh, and and using Russian assets to steal to steal technology. So I think that my guess is that they're, they're, the Russian side will have a bit of uh, hesitance of sharing really important information, um, partly because it might also reveal their own weaknesses, which they don't want China to know. Um, so that's a really uh, interesting question, and I wish I knew uh, the answer to it. Um, uh, so I, I'd be interested in seeing what Maya thinks about that. No, I, I actually fully agree, Brian. I think that that part about not revealing weaknesses is is incredibly important and i think that also has played a role in how we've seen china conduct some of its exercises as well around taiwan not to either give um, room for misinterpretation or, or miscalculation but also um to not necessarily um show uh uh, the capabilities that it perhaps is not fully confident in as well. So I think that counts for China as much as it does for Russia. Um, of course, on, on China's side around those post-Belosi exercises, I wouldn't say that's necessarily aimed at Russia um, uh, watching uh, Chinese capabilities. But um, I think that type of calculation certainly must, um, uh, likely does play, play a role in this. Um, but I think there's... There are all kinds of things that China, of course, can learn from this um, without that type of bilateral um, intelligence sharing um, that, that, that the PLA will be taking away from this. And I think um, key points that I think they'll be taking away are, are things about, um, you know, basic things like maintenance and logistics. But the PLA has been working on that for a long time. And again, it wouldn't be exactly the same type of scenario where I think there is greater crossover is areas in terms of 
things like information dominance, um, uh, use of electronic warfare, um, the use of cyber and space capabilities as well. Uh, and not just how China would do that, but of course also how the West has been able to do that using the private sector uh, as well. So I think those types of lessons um, that that public private like uh, military and private um, collaboration, how that would work, uh, I think has also been um, probably will have been interesting for for the PLA to watch. No, thank you both. Um, you know, not to sort of answer my own question, but I, I mean, my my take right now is I think the Russians would be quite willing, I think, to trade uh, information gleaned from the war, especially if it's involving Western weaponry in part because there's a shared mutual adversary in, in the United States and the West, but also because they are desperate for Chinese uh, help and cooperation when you see the Russians turning to the North Koreans for artillery, uh, according or at least reportedly. Um, and, and so I think this brings us to a sort of shifting to a uh, focus kind of on on a bit more of the, the present. Uh, there's been some questions in the chat about Chinese uh, attitudes and cooperation with Russia uh, since since February, since the war, um, you know, I, I think the Russians are, are in in real need for uh, assistance. Uh, they need uh, weapons. Um, now they ha still have a, a defense industry that is able to produce, but they are you know subject of massive sanctions and export controls. Um, I'm curious for both of your take on on China, China's posture toward Russia. Why hasn't China done more? Uh, this was a partnership with no limits. Here's you know Russia has is now in a in a war that they view as existential. Uh, they are uh, seeking support and help, um, and China appears very reticent, at least to allow uh, uh, to violate sanctions, to provide any arms or weaponry. Uh, why is that the case? Um, uh, Maya, maybe I'll start with you. I think the simple answer is that a partnership without limits isn't an alliance. Uh, and China does not act in anybody's interest but its own. So I'll find to say that you have a partnership without limits, but words can be pretty shallow at the end of the day when national interest is at stake. And, and here, once again, you know, having a whole host of problems domestically to take care of, uh, not least the economy, uh, due to you know, in part structural issues and zero COVID dynamic zero COVID policies. Having gone through a few years already um, uh, throughout the pandemic of uh, an increasingly uh, critical uh, uh, international and external environment for China, instability on its borders with Afghanistan, all at the culmination of a politically important year for President Xi and the party. Uh, I really don't see how that limitless relationship would have stayed limitless for very long, uh, to be honest, in, in, in this context. And and certainly, uh, you know, a real important point here was that that warning of the application of secondary sanctions on China if it did overstep uh, it, it, this uh, into the bilateral relationship with Russia um, and uh, and uh, overstep some of those sanctions in, in terms of helping the, the Russians with core components or with military equipment. Um, I think that message was received. Question is how are they, would they think about ways to circumvene that? Would they think of ways to, um, to still help and, um, and, and not help? So obviously I think those are things to look at in the future. Brian, curious for, for, for your thoughts. Yeah, I mean, in my opinion, the last, you know, since February, China has really tried to walk a very thin line on Russia and, and to to reassure, I think, Moscow, we, we saw 
some of the strongest statements I saw on the Chinese side were in September when when Li Jianshu, who is was at the time China's number three person and head of, head of their National People's Congress, went to Moscow and, and spoke and, and very you know firmly put the put the Ukraine war on the blame of NATO and the United States and and spoke in support of Russia's uh, you know Russia's claims there and, and or not their not their territorial claims but just Russia's stance on, on Ukraine. And and so, but you know, a week or so later, Xi Jinping was meeting with uh, Putin for the first time since the war, and the the relation the meeting wasn't this warm glowing rela- uh, meeting that I think we saw perhaps in February before the war started, and that was partly because the war in, in Ukraine was going so poorly for Russia at the time, with their major retreats uh, in in into into eastern Ukraine. So I think. This relationship, they say, has no limits, but I, I think there are pretty clear limits on, on what, what the relationship is uh, and how far Beijing is willing to go to, to risk blowback uh, directly. But I will, I'll just add that I don't know that that's necessarily an overall weakness of the relationship. It, it is uh, on an acute, on certain issues, but by and large, I, I think Beijing and Moscow view the, the relationship similarly, and they really don't want this to be the kind of formal uh, alliance that the United States has that that can impose real costs in order to maintain it, and and we saw in the 1950s the the Sino-Soviet alliance collapse uh, disastrously because both sides, uh, you know, had ideological differences, and they weren't really they weren't willing to to adhere to the the treaty that they set out. Uh, and so I think both we see Chinese scholars saying that it, it's actually stronger and better for China if the two can have a, a relationship that is built on mutual interest, especially opposing the United States, while realizing that they can't agree on everything and they can't be aligned on everything. So I think the kind of fluidity and flexibility of the relationship, they see it as a strength, not not necessarily weakness. So uh, we're going to have some questions from the chat and as many are, are coming in. But let me just say, um, I, you know, I, I, I sort of take take both of your points that that this was, you know, China was sort of assessing a strategic interest. But I think in some ways, this demonstrates why the, why Russia, I think, was well-founded to have a lack of trust in this potential relationship, where here is a massive conflict that Russia is essentially uh, tells China that it is fighting West, fighting the West, fighting NATO. Uh, and there's a real lack of support that comes comes forward. Uh, yes, Brian, there's, you know, some some verbal words of encouragement uh, for Russia, perhaps, but but not the kind of uh, cold, hard uh, military equipment that it might need. Um, let me go to, uh, there's a question from Andy uh, Zelicki, uh, apologies if I mispronounce your name, uh, th- asking, what are the odds of a no-limit uh, partnership progressing to a formal alliance within the next five years? Um, and and I think maybe, I think my answer would be fairly low, given that this would be the moment where I think we would see it come closer together. But just uh, want to survey both of you to see. Uh, do you think that this relationship, maybe if it's not a formal alliance, could get closer in the coming years? I guess I can jump in there. Just I think this partly connects to what I was saying earlier. Is I don't think that the two sides feel they need to have a formal alliance yet uh, and feel that they are have more flexibility without that, that kind of added weight to it. I will say, to me, uh, Russia, China, you know, Convergence and alignment uh, so far has been very heavily driven by perceptions of threat from the United States and its allies. And so that's the main variable that determines the, I think, the trajectory of the relationship. Uh, 
there's a baseline for why they need to have a stable relationship, but the strengthening of the relationship is is largely driven by these threat perceptions. So if you if China and Russia both do feel increasingly uh, growing threats from the United States and the West, then I think we will see more alignment. And, and I don't think that they they will feel that they have any other choice uh, because they are you know Russia is by far China's most powerful powerful partner. Um, it's the only large major country that's really been willing to be convergent on a lot of these issues. And, and so they won't have any choice in terms of competing with the United States uh, other than to continue to strengthen those relationships. If if tensions between the U.S. and China do ease, which I don't see happening really, uh, I think that you'll see maybe a, perhaps a cooling of that relationship out of, out of strategic need. But by and large, I think we're likely to continue to see pretty strong conversions. And let me turn over to, yeah, but let me just also add another question in from the chat that raises the question of whether Russia's poor military performance might prompt China to uh, to to go a different direction than Brian uh, mentioned, that to sort of distance itself a bit more from Russia. Yeah, it's. Um, I mean, I, I agree with Brian. I guess my question would be if Russia continues on the trajectory that it's in on now. And we see a Russia that becomes increasingly weaker and oh, I'm sorry, my camera has gone out of focus um, becomes increasingly weaker and technologically less useful and economically um, weaker as well, then what would the purpose of that alliance be? Then you could just keep it at a, a, a relationship, um, at a stronger, deeper partnership, whatever you want to call it. But would you then, as Beijing, really see value in formalizing an alliance in which you then might have to support Russian interests rather than your own. I, I I just find it difficult to think of a circumstance in which I can see that. Now, if Russia were were to rebound from this and become a more useful partner in, in these three different uh, ways, um, and as Brian noted, the uh, general context of uh, Western and then um, uh, competition with the West as a bloc becomes more pronounced, then then I could potentially see in the longer term uh, an alliance actually um, uh, forming. But uh, the current structure you're on, I'm not really that sure. Not convinced. Well, we have a, another we have a question for you, Maya, in the chat from Paul Schwartz, who also contributed an excellent chapter, uh, the Russian perspective on uh, military exercises. But he, he wants to ask you, uh, um, yeah. Do you see joint military R&D between Russia and China as a potential growth area that could possibly fly under the, the sanctions radar while benefiting both sides? It could. It, I suppose that it could fall under the um, sanctions radar. Uh, uh, would it benefit both sides? I think it might benefit China. And one thing that I'm going to be looking at at a project over the next few, um, over the next year is um, the uh, talent transfer um, out of Russia uh, and potentially either to China or in ways that is useful to Chinese defense industry. Because um, I think that's where uh, a, an opportunity may lie for, um, for, for the Chinese, not necessarily in hard technologies, but in this R&D space. Um, so this type of collaboration might um, might deepen, but again, my question would be useful in the long term and how long term. I mean, we've we've heard collaboration, you know, this collaboration on, for example, the 
um, early warning system um, being uh, it was announced years ago. I you know I um, there's very little public I think unclassified uh, sense of where that uh, project uh, that R and D project uh, is at the moment uh, and how advanced it is. So um, I guess you know for the short term benefit to Russia that would I mean this would be of a longer term uh, uh, trajectory than a shorter term uh, return. There's another question in the chat about Central Asia, and you know, given that Russia is is basically pulling its forces from all over uh, and sending them to Ukraine, uh, and this is per perhaps leading to a potential security vacuum. You know, in January, uh, Russia actually sent forces into Kazakhstan. Uh, they have bases in the region um, and have had to uh, uh, draw some of the forces from those. Um, do you see that China might seek to? Uh, take advantage, perhaps, of, of the security vacuum and play a greater role in Central Asia? That Did you see a potential tension there between uh, with Russia if, if China plays an in increasingly uh, important role? Uh, Brian, maybe to, to start with you. Sure. I think this is a really interesting question. And I think there, there, for a long time, there's been this theory that um, the U.S. and, or sorry, China and Russia have been able to cooperate in Central Asia because they provide different things. Uh, you have Russia providing security uh, cooperation and security assurances, while you have China really increasingly filling that economic role. And I think we are starting to see very, you know, minor signs that that, that is shifting a little bit with China, of course, continuing to play the economic role in the region while also stepping up its security footprint a bit in the region. So I think the central question is, uh, how much of that is Russia willing to allow? I mean, this this is a region that they have historically been, you know, very dominant in, uh, and have a long historical, you know, legacy. And and so, for me, you know, knowing what I know about Russia, I I, I do think that Moscow is going to bristle at that a little bit if if China acutely oversteps its its bounds. Uh, so I think for right now, China's been playing it pretty smart by trying to make steady gains uh, on the economic and on the security side in the region, but not doing it in ways that they know are going to necessarily anger anger Moscow. Um, as the power dynamic shifts increasingly in China's favor, how long will that be true? How long will China be willing to, um, you know, let another major power shape the region? Uh, how long will they be willing to to not dictate terms in the region as much? So, so that's I think that's a long term question, and I think it's very much still up in the air as to how that's going to go. So far, I think they've done a pretty good job of managing competition, but I think that could change uh, with with you know the shifting dynamics in the region. With with just a few minutes left, maybe one final question to to both of you to sort of uh, you know put in sort of a hypothetical crystal ball. Let's say the war continues to go badly for for Russia. Um, it becomes uh, quite dire for Russian forces uh, over the next year. Uh, and then there's an effort to engage Beijing in a very saying, we need your support. We need your help. If not, this is going to be a catastrophe for us. And it could potentially upset the stability of the regime in the Kremlin. Uh, do you think there's a way or do you think could you see an avenue for uh, for China to uh, reverse itself on sanctions to start providing Russia with more economic assistance? Uh, absorb the blow of secondary sanctions, start providing military equipment, essentially reverse where it's currently standing and become uh, a participant in this war and similar to how the West is being a, a participant in the war vis-a-vis -vis Ukraine. Do you envision a potential scenario in which that might be possible 
or is that something that is off the table? Uh, Maya, maybe we'll start with start with you this time. Sure. Um, so I think that entirely depends on what the Chinese economy looks like at that moment, and also, uh, like, I mean, assuming that great power competition and rivalry is is ongoing and as it is now, what the state of the Chinese economy is, what what dual circulation looks like, and whether or not that has actually become a success at that time, and also, more importantly, whether China's efforts to sanction-proof its economy have succeeded or made any progress. And um, you know, particular weaknesses here are in the financial sector. So uh, whether or not China has um, created alternatives that are widely used um, for things like SWIFT or um, internationalize the renminbi, I mean, all of these things need to happen before it can just decide to not care about the implications of potential secondary sanctions. So that's what I would be watching for um, uh, as you know, a stepping stone to, to whether or not it would take that decision. Yeah. I, I definitely agree with Maya on the point of, of where the Chinese economy is at, because I think Beijing is going to be really reluctant to to risk uh, sanctions blowback, uh, especially if the economy is not doing well, which it very much is not doing right now. Um, so I think that's a key factor. I think one thing I would point out is I don't think China wanted this war to happen anyway. Um, and, and once it did, I think they really wanted the Russians to, to win quickly. And, and to, to not drag this out because it, they see it as weakening their partner and in causing long-term stability, especially economic instability for China. So it's I don't think that they wanted this uh, and I think they really are hoping that it will wrap up uh, one way or the other. Um, so if you do see Russia in an increasingly desperate situation, my guess is, is China would probably ramp up diplomatic efforts to try to, to intervene in some way. If, if to not broker a deal, which I don't know that they're in a place to do that, um, and we haven't seen them, we saw some language around that early on in the war, but not really any concrete steps in terms of China intervening to resolve this. But you might see some uh, stepped-up diplomatic pressure put on put on Moscow and, and put on both sides to try to bring this to the end. Um, besides that, I, I just I think Beijing's going to be really hesitant to to you know put its neck out over the line and, and risk really significant blowback. Great. Well, thank you both. Thank you, Brian. Thank you, Maya. It is, uh, I think it was a really interesting conversation. Thank you all for joining us uh, for the hour. Uh, the report is understanding the broader transatlantic security implications of greater Sino-Russian uh, military alignment. It's available for free on the CSIS website. You, you too can download it uh, and read it today. You've been listening to Russian Roulette. We hope you enjoyed this episode and tune in again soon. Russian Roulette releases new episodes every two weeks on Thursdays and is available wherever you get your podcasts. So please subscribe and share our episodes online. And be sure to check out all the latest analysis by the Europe, Russia and Eurasia program at csis.org.